wonder if you would turn with me to the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. I'm going to talk somewhat fairly generally about the Corinthian correspondence this morning, but I want to put out a few specific ideas that Paul refers to in this first chapter. So, please, uh, here is the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Praise God for his holy word. Let us ask his blessing upon the preaching of that word. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, you are a God who dwells in unapproachable light and yet you condescended to take flesh and to reveal yourself through that flesh, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the loving triune God. And supremely, Lord, that revelation culminated in the cross. We ask this morning that as we come to contemplate this passage, your Holy Spirit might guide our hearts and minds that we might come to understand that cross in a deeper and a richer way. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that certainly non-Christians will find challenging about the Bible, and I think many Christians find challenging about the Bible, is this. How do we take texts that were written thousands of years ago and find anything in them that applies or speaks directly to us today? If you're a non-Christian, that will certainly be a big question. The Bible, the last book of the Bible was written sometime in the first century, nearly 2,000 years ago. But if you're a Christian, you might struggle with that as well. There are parts of the Bible that, yes, we know that they are inspired and uh, good for teaching and edifying, and yet perhaps seem somewhat alien to us. It's hard, perhaps, to read a book like Leviticus and draw much immediately from it. We might say that the distance between the culture in which the events are occurring and our culture today seems rather vast. One answer, of course, to the question is, why do these books still speak to us today? Is the simple one that, well, we share human nature with the people, the agents, the actors within the Bible. We have a common human nature. And that's true. But I think it fails to address that question of, well, why do some passages speak more powerfully to us immediately than others? And I think part of the answer to that question is this. We're not just human beings. We also exist in particular times and particular places. If you've done any travel on the world scene, you'll know this. If you travel to Southeast Asia or to London or to South America, you will recognise the people there as human beings, as sharing a common human nature. You could fall in love with one of them, you could marry them, you could have children. We belong to the same species. And yet if you have any reflective ability at all, when you visit a foreign country, you realise that people do things differently there. Their cultures are different. The values they have may be different. And what that means, of course, on one level is, we might say from a biblical perspective, different cultures are prone to different temptations. To use the sort of more technical language, let's say different cultures are tempted to sin in different ways. They're tempted to rebel against God in different ways. 
And that's why I think the Corinthian correspondence is very, very helpful when thinking about the gospel in the context of the United States today. Because of all the books, I think, in the Bible, the Corinthian letters, Paul's first and second letter to the church in Corinth, are addressed to a culture that is very, very close in its way of thinking and its values to the culture of North America today. So I want to spend the first part of the address just reflecting a bit on Corinthian culture. And then I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and say, so how does Paul begin to address the problems that Corinthian culture, American culture, present to us today? First thing to know about Corinth is this. It was a very ancient city. Uh, We have records of Corinth going back to 800 BC. So it's a very ancient city. But it was actually destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC. It was destroyed. And it wasn't refounded, reestablished until 44 BC. And if you've ever seen a map of Greece, you'll know that Corinth is on what they call the Corinthian Isthmus. It's on a very narrow piece of land. It was a port city. And it grew incredibly rapidly from 44 BC onwards. Less than a, well, maybe just over 100 years later, perhaps. Around about 100 years later when Paul is writing, the city has 80,000 inhabitants, which is a pretty decent-sized city in the first century. 80,000 urban dwellers, 20,000 rural dwellers around the outside. So it's a city of 100,000 people. Its great social and economic opportunities made it a focus for immigration. It's very, we would say today, a very diverse city. First century, they didn't really have the concept of race, but it was very diverse in terms of the different tribes, linguistic groups, language groups that would be represented there. Had a significant Jewish population. It was also a place that had a strong entertainment culture. You all know about the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games, the sort of the name pays homage to uh, an ancient cycle of sporting competitions that would take place in what we now call Greece in the ancient world. But they weren't the only competitive games in ancient Greece. There was also the Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games were located in Corinth. And at the heart of the Isthmian Games, and this is perhaps a a little odd for us uh, in in the modern world, at the heart of the Isthmian Games was a public speaking competition. We live in an era of small things in terms of speeches. We will never see another Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln, probably. Maybe Martin Luther King was the last great speech maker in the United States. We don't live in an era of great memorable speeches. But in ancient Greece, public speaking was very important. And they had these competitive games. And the orators, the competitors, uh, they were magnificent specimens. They weren't just great and eloquent speakers. They were expected to look like Greek gods come down to earth. They worked out. I don't know what the ancient equivalent of pumping iron was, but they did it. They made themselves big and strong. 
They also, we know, this is kind of slightly amusing but eye-watering fact, uh, uh, they also uh, uh, removed the hair from their chests. Uh, we know that uh, they did that because we have reports. They didn't wax their chests. They, in the ancient world, they used uh, bitumen or tar. So you'd have hot tar poured on your chest and then it would be ripped off and take all the hair with it. And we know that this process is very painful because we have letters from people who lived close to these sort of male grooming salons complaining about the blood-curdling screams of pain that would come from these places. But the whole point was you were to be beautiful. You had to sound magnificent and you had to look beautiful. If you've read the Corinthian correspondence, of course, certain things that Paul says start to make a kind of sense now. Because Paul talks about, you know, you, you, you say, you know, I'm not an impressive public speaker and I'm not great to look at. You think, well, what does Paul say, you know, that he's humble of you know, stature, unimpressive to look at, an unimpressive public speaker? Well, Paul's working against the background of a church that has bought in to the secular ideal of speaking and looks and he's using that to judge his ministry. He'll lay that out in great length in 2 Corinthians. So it's an entertainment culture, but a culture also preoccupied, we might say, with aesthetics, with outward beauty, outward appearance. It's also a culture of rugged individualism. A lot of immigrants, these are not the large and long-standing family structures that a well-established society would have. And that makes people individualists. There's a reason why America, at least at one time, was regarded as a culture of rugged individualists. It's a culture of immigrants. You're more or less saying the same thing. My wife and I are immigrants uh, during covid uh, my sons got married at the end of COVID and at the wedding, nobody came from our home country to the wedding. They couldn't get out. And I remember on the wedding day saying to my wife, wow, it really is just us, isn't it? It's you, me and the two boys. Well, that kind of culture makes you very self-sufficient. Very self-sufficient. <clears throat> it's also a highly sexualized world. It's a port city. When I was doing my doctoral work at the University of Aberdeen, I lived in a small fishing village just outside Aberdeen. Aberdeen is a port city and it bordered on the red light district. It was a big part of the Aberdeen sort of underground industry was what we'd now call the sex industry. There is a reason why when my wife came to visit me, which was my girlfriend then, got the bus to the village, I would always meet her at the bus stop. Didn't matter what time of day it was because across the road was a bad place. A highly sexualized place. It's not surprising in Corinth that there is sexual dysfunction within this congregation. That's the world they live in. One might say, you know, what's surprising, what's not surprising about Corinth is the weird sexual dysfunction. What is surprising about Corinth is that there's a church there at all, given the makeup of the culture. And it's also a world where wealth is crucial to status. Britain is very different to America on this front. I could never aspire to be king of England because the British class system doesn't work like that. British class system is not a, a case of getting money to rise up the hierarchy. You rise up the tax brackets, but you don't rise up the hierarchy. 
class in Britain is not a function of money. It's a function of where you went to school and what your family is, what land they own, what your surname is. That's not the case in Corinth. Corinth, this is a new city. And new cities are built on new money. There's a lot of social mobility here. You get status in Corinth by what you earn and by what you buy. Where you live, what you own, that locates you within the social hierarchy and you can move up or down. Let's think about this relative to America. What is American culture? Well, I would say it's a culture profoundly preoccupied with celebrity, with outward beauty, with outward trappings of power. The students at Grove, it's become a tradition in my classes that they nominate somebody to write down all the things I say that at any other school I might get fired for. Uh, and one of the things I say when I'm teaching uh, in humanities here, I say, you know, you know, America, if you're not beautiful enough to be a supermodel, not quite beautiful enough to be a supermodel, you become a weather girl. Have you noticed that? The unremitting beauty of weather girls in America. Well, why? There's no connection between meteorology and outward physical beauty. It's just that the TV serves up, generally speaking, an unremitting diet of impossibly beautiful people. Even the policemen are fit and good-looking on the TV. America, like Corinth, is a culture preoccupied with outward beauty and power. America is a country of rugged individuals who don't like external authority. More than any other country in the Western Hemisphere, Americans don't like external authority. It served America well for several centuries. It serves America catastrophically badly today, I would say. Partly because of my next point, America is a highly sexualized culture as well. It's not unique in that aspect, of course, but America is a culture permeated by sex. It's a culture where money can buy you whatever you want, including status. Some of you may have watched in the years past Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey is a great slice of English culture because there you have the class structure displayed for you. You, know, you could ultimately, if you like, as happens in the remains of the day, you could be an American who buys an English stately home, but you can never be a lord. You can never, strictly speaking, be lord of the manor. You have to be born. You have to be born to be lord of the manor in England. In America, you can be brought up in a trailer park and aspire to be the head of state. You've had a president who did that within living memory. No king of England was ever brought up in a trailer park. It's just not possible. It's just not possible because you don't have that fluid social mobility. And of course, what goes with that fluid social mobility is status becomes not a matter of 
what family you were born to. It becomes a matter of how much money you have, how much you can buy, how much you can display to others about how powerful you are. That's the culture that Paul writes to. And that's why the Corinthian correspondence, I think, is so useful in thinking about the gospel relative to America today. What does Paul do? He does it throughout the Corinthian correspondence, but you know, he starts off. It's naught to 60 miles an hour in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. What does Paul do? He presents the gospel, particularly the gospel articulated as the cross, as the contradiction of all this. When you read 1 Corinthians, you know, there's a temptation, I think, when we come to the bit about, you know, one of you says, I follow Paul. One of you says, I follow Apollos. One of you says, I follow Cephas. One of you says, I follow Christ. What I sometimes hear said about that is, that's Paul condemning denominationalism. The fragmentation of the church. Now, don't get me wrong, the fragmentation of the church is a scandalous thing. And if I were asked to preach on that, I would, but I wouldn't preach on it from this text because I don't think that's what this text is addressing. What this text is addressing is the cult of celebrity. What you have in Corinth, in the church, is a competition as to who follows the coolest guy. Who follows the coolest guy? That's the problem. We get our first hint, if you like, that the problem with the Corinthian church is the worldly culture of Corinth is seeping in to the churchly culture of Corinth. How does Paul combat this? Well, he points to the cross. And he points to the cross as revelation. Often when we think about the cross of Christ, uh, certainly as evangelical Protestants, we tend to think about it as an act of God. It's an atonement for sin. Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, has sin placed upon him. Indeed, Paul intensifies that in 2 Corinthians. He says, Jesus has made sin for us, dies and rises again. There's an act of God on the cross. And that's absolutely true. But the cross is much richer than just that act. The cross is also a revelation of who God is towards his people. God is not just doing something on the cross. He's showing something on the cross. What is he showing? He's showing that God is not made in man's image. I think the great temptation of all cultures and of all Christians is this, and indeed of non-Christians. It's to make God in man's image, not to accept that man is made in God's image. And often this is focused in history on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you uh, know anything about the uh, pontificate of John Paul II, uh, sort of Pope of the latter decades of the 20th century, 
you may know that one of the big battles that he fought in the 1980s in the Catholic Church was against what's called liberation theology. Liberation theology was very popular in South America. And it was uh, piloted by a group of Catholic theologians who essentially uh, fused together their understanding of Jesus with notions of social revolution, often with a kind of Marxist feel. Jesus became the great social revolutionary. And John Paul II did a lot to fight against that. And one could summarize what he was doing in this way. One could say he did not want Jesus accommodated to the worldly political ambitions of South American revolutionaries. Of course, it's very easy uh, to pick on the other side. You know, politically, I'm sore of centre, but probably tilt a little right of centre on the whole, depending on the issue. It's very easy for a guy like me to look at the far left and point my finger at them and say, look at how they make Jesus in their own image. They make Jesus into a sort of first century Marxist revolutionary. Well, we're all tempted to do that. You go onto Amazon and look up the books on Jesus, quite a large variety of books on Jesus. Jesus as CEO is actually what I think is quite a blasphemous picture on the internet. You can see where two guys are shaking on a deal and Jesus is standing between them with his arms around them, helping them broker a deal. If you're like, well, what's that? That's that's Jesus made in the image of the businessman. Jesus made in the image of the businessman. Think of Joel Osteen, your best life now. Find Joel Osteen personally, got a hard guy to dislike. He's a sort of likable character, it seems. But what's the gospel according to Joel Osteen? Well, it's Jesus will meet your needs as you understand them. Jesus will be like a sort of big brother or a great therapist, but not in a secular way. There'll be a sort of religious gloss there. We can all make Jesus in our own image from the far left of the political spectrum to the far right of the political spectrum. It's very comforting to come up with a Jesus who happens to look a bit like me, only a whole lot better. We're all tempted by that. And that's what's going on in Corinth here. These people are making Jesus in their own image. It's why they have a problem with Paul's ministry, as you'll see if you read 2 Corinthians. It's because Jesus, Paul's ministry is not strong and cool. They don't think he's a real apostle. And Paul's point is, wow, if you think being strong and cool is a major component of being a faithful minister, you've got a real problem with the cross. Because the cross is a display of weakness and horror. It's not a display of beauty and coolness. Paul presents here the cross as the condemnation of every Christian's temptation and every culture's temptation to remake God in their or its own image. Think about the scene on the cross as recounted in the Gospel of Luke. Four reactions to the cross. The soldiers, the religious leaders, and the first thief on the cross all play on the theme of, if you are the king of the Jews, come on down from the cross. Escape from death. Then you have the remarkable statement by the second thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Second thief gets a bad rap quite often 
in Christian circles. A sort of bad rap. You know, he's, he doesn't know very much, but somehow he gets through by the skin of his teeth. Actually, if you look at the text, the second thief knows an awful lot. He knows God is holy. He knows he's sinful. He knows that the judgment he's going to face after death is more terrifying than the judgment he's facing as he hangs on the cross. He knows, he may not know that Jesus is the sinless son of God, but he certainly knows that Jesus doesn't deserve to die. And he does. He has an acute knowledge of his own sinfulness. And most brilliantly, of course, he understands that Jesus' kingdom is not inaugurated by escaping from death, but by going through death. The second thief on the cross gets the logic of the cross, that God is not to be made in his image, but glory is to be found through him acknowledging that God is who he is, and he is made in God's image. The cross redefines every theological term you might care to think of. Power. How do we think about power? We tend to think about power as coercive, that which allows me to impose my will on somebody else. And that can be important in earthly contexts. It's good that governments have coercive power to put down the wicked and protect the innocent. But Christ's power is demonstrated through the weakness of the cross. Think of the responses to the cross, the cultural responses. The Greeks, Paul says, think the cross is foolishness. The Jews think it's a moral offence. Think about that. That kind of sums up pretty much every objection to the cross is going to fall into one of those two categories. Either it's idiocy or it's immoral. When I was at college in the 80s, big objections to Christianity were what I would call sort of uh, intellectual objections. It was intellectually incoherent. Today, the big objections to Christianity are it's morally reprehensible. Those two basic objections continue to set the stage for reactions to the cross today. What does Paul say? But to those who are being saved, the cross is the power of God to salvation. It's the wisdom of God. We don't bring our understanding of power and wisdom and then try to jam the cross into them. We go to the cross to find what wisdom and power is according to God. And then think about ourselves and our world in relation to that. And that brings me then to some very practical thinking about this. What would this do practically? Well, I think first of all, the cross, understood this way, should promote humility. And that's what Paul does so brilliantly is he sort of turns the knife or turns the tables, perhaps is a less brutal um, uh, metaphor, turns the tables on the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. At the end where he says, you know, not many of you were great and good. He's essentially saying to them there, if for the sake of argument, we were to have a God in the image that you want him to be in, none of you would have made it. None of you would have made it. You're creating a God who will condemn you at that point. It is only because God is the opposite of what you think that he looks at the things that are not that you're actually here today. That's what Paul is saying. 
at this point. That should be a cause for humility among Christians. There should be no place with Christians to look down on somebody else. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they do. They're creatures made in the image of God. And the only thing that discriminates between you and them, if they're not a believer, is the grace of God. There's nothing intrinsic in you. It's not how much you earn or how clever you are. It's God's grace. That should be humbling. The cross should humble us. If you're a non-Christian, I would suggest you, the cross should give you hope. Christians here know the dark places in their hearts and minds they can't even tell their nearest and dearest about because they know they would want nothing to do with them if they knew. It's humbling then to be loved by God. If you're a non-Christian, I would suggest to you that the, the devil's most powerful ploy to prevent you from becoming a Christian, to prevent you from closing with Christ, is this. You're too dirty for God. You're too foul for God. Your sins are too many. Your rebellion is too significant. Well, we don't have time to look at the passage today, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul doesn't just say, I mentioned this earlier, doesn't just say our sins were placed upon Christ to be punished. He says Christ was made sin for us. It's a mysterious passage. One of the things it means, though, is there is no place, there is no soul so dark, there is no place so black that God has not been there. And God has not redeemed it. If you're a non-Christian here today, do not let your feelings of inadequacy stop you from closing with Christ. Do not let the fact that you think you're a thing that is not prevent you from allowing God to make you something that is, to use Paul's language. And that brings me to my final point. What does this do? It should promote joy. If I was preaching this sermon in Korea, if I was preaching it in Europe or South America, I'd be pulling at different things. But here, preaching in America, what gives you joy? Is it your money? Is it your status? Is it where you live? Something wrong with being thankful for all these things. But in what does your ultimate joy consist? Paul would say, it should consist in the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is God's message that there is no mind so dark and no heart so foul that God cannot redeem it. If you're a Christian here today, be humbly joyful in that thought. If you're not a Christian, turn to Christ for he will delight to receive you. Let us pray. Oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revelation on the cross. We thank you that you are a God who humbled himself and took the form of a servant and dwelt among the things that are not, indeed became in a sense that which is not. And yet through death and resurrection was raised to the right hand of God the Father on high. We praise you for that, Lord, and we ask that you would keep us safe, united to him, as we look for that great and general resurrection at the end of time, where we too, having gone through the humiliation of death, will rise to glory in Christ. Amen.